Czech pastries in Texas, Malaysian dishes in South Africa, and a Korean-Russian-Uzbek fusion restaurant in Brooklyn. This week, it's Transplanted Cuisine. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the show where we explore the cuisine of the world. And this week, it's a look at transplanted cuisine. And if you're wondering what transplanted cuisine is, it's a simple concept. When a dish travels from one country or region to another, that's transplanted cuisine. But more than that, we're talking about people and cultures, because it's usually immigrants and refugees and even slaves bringing their dishes to a new place. And oftentimes that dish will change in some way as it travels. It might be because a certain ingredient isn't available in a new place, so a new one has to be substituted. Or maybe the dish will combine in some way with an existing dish to create something new and exciting. So that's transplanted cuisine in a nutshell, and it's something we often talk about on Destination Eat Drink. That's why I thought I'd put together this episode featuring some of my favorite conversations about transplanted cuisine. But before we do that, could you do me a favor? If you've enjoyed the show, give us a five-star review on your podcast app. I'd really appreciate it, and thank you. Destination Eat Drink. Rachel Lawden gets credit for turning me on to the idea of transplanted cuisine. I knew of the concept before, even talked about it on the podcast, but Rachel gave the idea of transplanted cuisine a name and codified it. And I had her on the show back like two years ago, and she and I talked about our love of Hawaiian cuisine and how Hawaiian cuisine fits into the concept of transplanted cuisine. What was some of the food that you this sounds like a very eye-opening experience for you. What was some of the food that you first encountered that you thought, wow, this is incredibly interesting and I want to devote more time to it? I remember almost the first day I was in the office, there was a plate of little round brown things. And I said, well, what are these? And they said, they're andagi. And I said, Oh, really? Um, so what are andagi? They said, oh, they're just like malasadas. And I said, well, what are malasadas? <laughs> and it turns out that malasadas are a Portuguese donut and andagi are a kind of Okinawan donut. But since I had never encountered malasadas are not made by and large in mainland Portugal, only in the Portuguese islands in the Atlantic, and I'd never encountered Okinawan food before, so this was completely new to me. This is what we talk about when we talk about the um, combining of cuisines. And I, I don't know that there's a better place to observe this than in Hawaii. I think what a lot of people get wrong about Hawaiian cuisine is they think it's all poke and tropical fruit and luau's. And actually, it's so much more than that. I think it's one of the most fascinating places for food on earth, just as it's one of the most fascinating places for language on earth because of this mix and this combination. And uh, I think it's a 
a, a, a wonderful observatory for food. And for me, it overturned uh, the unthinking idea I had about food, which uh, I think is very generally held, namely that food comes from uh, the land, from the terroir, that it's the native plants and animals of the region which are cooked up by peasants and then gradually refined up into higher cuisines, and that's the way cuisines evolve. And, of course, Hawaii makes complete nonsense of that story. When the Hawaiians arrived, there was essentially nothing edible in the islands except fish, seaweed, and some flightless birds that went extinct rather rapidly. And you can't live on fish and seaweed. So that every group that has come into Hawaii has had to bring in their complete uh, portmanteau, their complete suitcase, if you like, of uh, plants, animals, uh, cooking uh, techniques, utensils, uh, customs. And uh, these have traveled over... Uh, 3,000 miles of ocean, and um, in Hawaii they can they both remain distinct, but in public places also m merge and meld. And for me, that's the model of how cuisine across the world has evolved. Elsa Erasmus is the owner of Cape Town Culinary Tours. She explains how the brutal slave trade in South Africa influenced the country's cuisine. I had no idea that people from Malaysia were brought to South Africa originally as slaves. Mm -hmm. I just assumed yes. that it was strictly the African slave trade. Mm -hmm. Talk about yeah. how, how the Malaysian people came to Cape Town, but also talk about the Cape mm -hmm. Malay community and some of the ways that we can experience their culture when we come to visit Cape Town. Oh, yeah. So um, something that we very, feel very strongly about on the tours as well is that many of our cultures that was brought into uh, not just South Africa, but in the point of entry in Cape Town does not get a lot of recognition. Um, we talk about our first slaves uh, were brought in from Angola, uh, which was part of the VOC, which was the Dutch East Indian Trade Company. So when they made their way from Europe, they, you know, stopped by Angola. We got slaves there. Later on, we also had Senegalese influence, which was some of our first French influence into South Africa, which not a lot of people know. They made their way down to Cape Town. That became between 1652, 1654, became a freshwater supply stop here in Cape Town um, for the, the Dutch and the British to kind of pass by on the way to um, Madagascar, India, Sri Lanka to go get spice and stuff like that. Um, but then also the roots expanded um, as the VOC also became bigger and more popular. Demand for um, tea, saffron, pepper was one of the highest, or most expensive spices at the time. And then also things like lentils and uh, what's the other one? Chickpeas. You know, that actually came from our eastern borders. So looking at, uh, once again, Madagascar, uh, Tanzania's water, uh, ocean coasts. Um, so a lot of these flavors were brought in through the VOC. And then also Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, they were brought in mainly slaves, as along with a lot of our Indian slaves, Sri Lankan slaves, people from Madagascar were brought to Cape Town and then housed here um, under 
rural circumstances and then forced to make this their home. Uh, you were stripped from any identity. So if your name was Erasmus, <laughs> it probably would, if you were here brought in by the month of February, you'll now be um, Alsha February. So you were stripped from any identity you oh, had and wow. Cape Town cre- created its own culture, which now is known as the Cape Malayan people um, the Cape colored people. That's also two very different things when you speak to people about it. Um, very proud of both names. I know in some parts of the world, um, talking about something like a mixed race or Cape Malayan or Cape colored might be offensive in Cape Town of you or South Africa. If you mix those two around, you will be offending that race. Um, so it's a very particular group of people, a very particular now that a, a DNA that has been formed here in Cape Town. And it's still very much noticeable um, throughout. I'm sure you know the, the Boer Corp, ugh, the beautiful, colorful houses. Everybody always wears the colorful houses. It's, right, right. It's stunning. Boer Corp basically means above the Cape because the rich and the more... Uh, Fortunate lived closer to the water, and that would have meant in Afrikaans it says the Waterkant, or which we now know as the foreshore waterfront. Um, and the slaves had to live above the hill, on the hill, because if anything had to happen, you know, the rich would be able to get away as quickly as possible, and then the slaves had to wait. Oh, wow. That's their escape route on the sea. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Not to overcrowd the ships and like that. So, yeah, this area is, you know, being, you know, the Cape Quarter, the District 6 area, the Boerkop area, um, was kind of different quarters in town created through the slave trade um, with these particular people in them. And then we created our own little culture. What would be a typical Cape Malay dish that we could enjoy? Sure. Like this is a thing with suburbs. Uh, one thing I love Cape Malayan food. I also like Indian food and there's a very fine border between them. And then also with the suburbs, like some people have lived, uh, being Cape Malayan, uh, for, you know, very, very long in the outskirts of Cape Town. And they consider themselves, of course, the, the most Cape Malayan. Then you come to Cape Town city center and you go to the Boerkop. We've got a lady there called Fatima. If you, you just search Cape Malayan food in Cape Town, she pops up on Google. Wonderful woman cooking in her home in Boerkop. She takes you in. She makes you, well, she shows you how to make the Cape Malayan curries. This could be with, you know, with rotis, with chapati. It's, it sounds very Indian, but it is not. It's got a very particular flavor. We use a lot of cardamom. We use a lot of coliander. Um, your curry flavors are there still, but we love things like ginger, uh, garlic, onions, stews, broths, um, with your rice, uh, with pup. Pup is like a palenta. Um, you put that for breakfast, you put it for lunch, you put it for dinner. You have anything from, dessert that's like malfa pudding but that's also very much of afrikaans but it's definitely very intertwined into our cape malayan culture um you have kook sisters which people forget because they only read about kook sisters kook sisters is the very dutch afrikaans sweet weaved pastry and then the kook sister is the cape malayan one which is almost like a, a puff donut 
with spiced chai tea flavor in it with condensed Ooh. milk and coconut sprinkled all over it. It is Sounds fantastic. Good. You have to get it fresh. Oh, it's good. It is very good. So there's, there's a lot of diversity when it comes to the Cape Malayan food. With, they use a lot of samosas. I mean, samosas are part of many cultures over the world, but you know, most of our Cape Malayan food is vegetarian. Um, so we've had vegetarian food for centuries, you know, we, we know how to cook with it. We didn't have a lot of ingredients. Um, so we kind of had to use what we had available to us. So if we get a, if we get a samosa in a Cape Malay neighborhood, that would be, it would be Malaysian in origin, not Indian. Not Indian. Yeah, definitely. And also our spices, um, looking almost Vietnamese, Taiwanese. It's a lot of peanut butter. It's a lot of sesame seeds. It's a lot of bit of chili spice on top. So it almost goes a lot more back to um, Asian influence than your Indian influence. Uh, they both come together because they're very both uh, relevant to each dish. We use all the same ingredients, just enhancing each other. So that's one thing about us. Not one singular ingredient overpowers a dish. It it enhances. Everything comes together. You'll taste every single thing and every bite. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's amazing. Alex Mayazi is the editor of Gastro Obscura, one of the best places on the web for interesting cuisine. He makes his home in New York and tells me about a Korean-Russian-Uzbekistan fusion cuisine and where to get it in Brooklyn. What are some of your favorite places in Brooklyn for food? One of my favorite things to do, I always like when I can combine my my love of uh, biking or hiking with, with food or drink. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is I'll go on this uh, bike ride by the water that I very much enjoy. And on my way back, when I'm getting close to the end, I'll stop at a restaurant near Coney Island that has several names. One is Eddie's Fancy Food. Another is Cafe at Your Mother-in-Law. <laughs> I believe there's a third that's not coming to mind right now, um, which I apologize about. Um, but it's this Korean-Russian-Uzbek restaurant. Um, it's a pretty hard-to-find obscure cuisine that's served there. It's called Koryo Saram Food. And the Koryo Saram they have this really interesting and tragic backstory um, where the Koryosaram were, if we go back to kind of the early 1900s, they were a group of ethnic Koreans living on the Russian side of the Russia-Korea border. As World War II approached, Stalin and Soviet leadership, uh, due to a combination of probably paranoia and racism, were worried that um, the Koryosaram would be unreliable um, in the case of a war, that you know they, they could not be trusted, um, despite the fact that they had really made lives for themselves in Russia and, and been part of the country. And so, you know, with, with no warning and in quite traumatic fashion, um, all of these people were moved uh, forcibly from you know where they live near the Korean border to parts of Central Asia, uh, you know then part of, then what was kind of the frontier or less populated areas of the Soviet Union, uh, but are you know now part of Uzbekistan and, and other Central Asian countries. The move in trying to create new lives was a very traumatic experience. You know, decades later, you have this um, fusion food essentially combining Korean 
Russia and Uzbek in really uh, interesting, unique ways. And so there is a Choreo Saram restaurant in, in Brooklyn, near Coney Island, uh, with three names, as previously discussed. Um, and so I've, you know, really enjoyed being able to go out by the water and then go visit this restaurant um, and have a meal there. And it's, you know, certainly it's not, uh, it's not a fancy restaurant, but it's the, the food is something really unique and special. And, uh, there's, there's always this kind of, I think when, when Atlas Obscura is at its, uh, best in terms of pointing people to experiences in the real world, um, all of us have kind of experienced that, uh, a very particular feeling, a bit of a, a thrill of discovery, but also a, a sense that you're tapping into something deep there. Um, and, and certainly I, I enjoyed getting that feeling when, when I visited. Star Galani is the owner of Best Bites Houston. She tells me about a pastry called a colache brought to Texas by Czech immigrants in the mid-19th century. But what's so interesting about these colaches is the Texas spin that's put on them. So a colache is, um, I believe it roots back to a Czech um, pastry is a good way to describe it. And in Houston, like we are one of the most diversity. So there's a lot of locals that have been making um, this particular pastry called a kolache for generations. And uh, my favorite one and the one that's most historic is a um, kolache shop called the kolache shop. <laughs> it's actually called kolache shop. <laughs> there's two locations now in the Houston area. The one that's closest to me is on uh, Richmond and West Lane. And I love going there because it was when it was, I think it was originally founded in the 80s uh, by this gentleman. Um, and he was making them for about two decades before this husband and wife couple. They were regulars at um, the Kolachi shop. And one day the owner told him that he was looking to sell. And instead of um, them letting him sell it to someone, they literally were like, please teach us the recipe. We'll buy it from you. We love this place. Wow. <laughs> and um, the rest is history. Now they have a second location and they've kept the same recipes and a lot of the same procedures. And what's really unique about uh, Kolachi shop is not only do they have a traditional kolache, which can be um, a pastry with uh, a fruit filling or a um, pastry with meat fillings, they actually have one with a from with brisket from a local barbecue joint called Pinkerton's. So you're able to even experience a brisket egg and cheese kolache or even just a brisket and jalapeno kolache, which is literally what I feel like is in true Texas form that you should try when you're in Houston. James Blick is the co-founder of the foodie tour company Devour Tours. He talks about vermouth, which originated in Turin, Italy in the 18th century. It moved to Spain in the 20th century. And today it's one of the most popular drinks in Spanish cities where it's been fully embraced. Vermouth, like for you, so many people that I've met who have come to Spain have had that vermouth epiphany uh, and have, you know, they know of it. They've heard of it. They're like, is that martini? Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, and then you're like, uh, well, first of all, yes, martini is a, is a brand of vermouth, but we have our local brands here in Spain and we serve it on tap. And the bars will often have, you know, two taps, one for beer and one for vermouth. And we drink it straight. Uh, and people's people are like, oh, I'm not going to like this. And they try it. And, you know, next thing they're, they're you know, they're having vermouths every day. And, and, it, <laughs> and, and I think... Yes. What people love about it as well, and what I love about it, is we have this concept here called La Hora del Vermú, which means like vermouth time, or you know, literally mm -hmm. as the vermouth hour, but really it's like vermouth time. And this is something that we have in Madrid and Barcelona and in, in 
you know, different parts of Spain, but not so much in the north and not traditionally so much in the south. And and it's before a meal, uh, generally on the weekend, before lunch, you will uh, go to a tapas bar and you will have a glass of vermouth. And this is this, you know, sweet drink that has some bitterness to it and it's infused with different botanicals and spices. It's It's a wine based drink. Uh, and you will have that and you will have it with sort of different pickled uh, or vinegary snacks, uh, you know, and potato chips, anchovies on potato chips, you know, some canned things, olives. And it's just it's for me, it's almost like I, I have a YouTube channel and about kind of where to eat in Spain and things like that. And I think once what I said kind of in the spur of the moment about vermouth is is how I what I do love about it. It's like it tastes like hope. And it's like the beginning mm, of wow. the beginning of lunch, you know, before you get to dessert and you feel horrendous and you got to go and have a you got to have a siesta and it's like <laughs> you know you're foggy and things like that. It's that moment when it's the first drink you're with friends and and it's quite strong. It's about fifteen percent. So you you know you feel the alcohol and you get a bit of that buzz on, and it's just so easy to drink. and And I just think it's a wonderful moment in the day. Say you know we obviously eat lunch about two two maybe three o'clock on a weekend. So it's like one one thirty. Uh, or even earlier, and you're just starting to kind of open up into what is going to be this wonderful lunch experience with friends. And vermouth is like the 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 the, the kind of like the trigger for that uh, and the association with that. So the culture is huge here, and it's actually come back. You know, it's gone through waves. Vermouth originally was created in the 18th century in Turin in in Italy, right. and came to Spain in the early 20th century with Italian immigrants to Barcelona. So it's very strong in Barcelona and then came to Madrid. But if you were here in Madrid sort of 20 years ago, it was considered like, quote unquote, like an old man's drink. Uh, but now it has become, it's kind of come back as, you know, as we, you know, particularly with more globalization, I think people like to that sense of like, well, what is my culture? You know, you know, where am I from? Uh, what do we have that's unique here? And so there's been a real resurgence of, of vermouth. Uh, and actually somebody told me that vermouth, like the vermouth hour, like that lunchtime pre drink is huge now because a lot of people who are say in their thirties or, you know, twenties, if they've got, if they're starting to have kids, it's a great way to day drink with your family around because you can go down <laughs> to the local bar with your friends and you've got the, you know, and kids are allowed in bars in Spain. And so you've got the stroller there and you're, you're effectively day drinking so, and having a couple of vermouths. So I don't know if that bears any, you know, is true, but I like that theory as well. <laughs> okay, there you go. I've got links to the full episodes from all these shows and links to my guest's website in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED148. You know, I often talk on this show about how a dish was quote unquote invented. And listening back to this, it reminds me of something that we often talk about here, which is that it's really hard to pinpoint how a dish was invented. In fact, a lot of times it wasn't even really invented. It's just points in time as it changed in ingredients, preparation, and geography that make it into what we know it today. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Next week, it's speakeasies and prohibition on the podcast. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story there about chocolate in Hawaii, the only state with a chocolate industry and some of the best chocolate places ever. That's DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and the guy who combined Chicago-style pizza and a Czech pastry into a deep-dish kolache, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. 
Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>